Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. Welcome back to the Remaster Podcast, hosted by me, Abdullah Freeman. And we're here for a very special edition episode, special edition episode, Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa. We're talking about the Holy Land, Palestine, Palestine. And we're here joined with a wonderful guest today. We have the wonderful brother, Tahir Razala, Director of the Outreach and Grassroots Organization, American Muslims for Palestine. And he's currently uh, getting uh, his PhD in American Studies at the University of Minnesota. Shout out to the Gophers, you know, <laughs> brother uh, Tahir. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah and thank you for having me, brother Abdullahi. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Welcome. So, you know, this is uh, currently, if people don't know what's going on, currently, um, what was it, October 7th? Is that when the situation started? October Current. 7th? Current, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. October Saturday, 7th, Israel decided to declare war on, uh, they say Hamas, but it's really they're declaring war on Gaza, you know, on the people of Gaza. And they are, I mean, just unleashing a relentless attack to a people that are defenseless. You know, these people have mm-hmm. nowhere to go. These people are just in what people classify as the biggest open prison in the world, right? Um, it's very sad and unfortunate. So we're going to be here. Really, the purpose of this podcast today is to detail, mm-hmm. to start from a historical perspective, with the religious aspect, of course, because we're Muslimin and where this is coming from, how this is tied to the Quran, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to say about this the, uh, hadith of the Prophet وسلم, and going down until we how we get to this current point in this current situation and the way forward, what best we can do to help support these people. But while I mention that, please, you guys, sponsor, uh, uh, please donate to Mercy Without Limits, a uh, partner of Muslim American Society Mass, who is powers this podcast. We're not sponsoring a war. We're not funding fighters. We're trying to save children. You know, I've seen a statistic. 43% of the population of Gaza is under the age of 14. So that's about 860,000 people that are children. Please, we're not funding a war. We're trying to save children. So please donate to that. And also uh, donate to uh, American Muslims for Palestine. Please, Brother Tahir, if you have anything you want to add to that, just before we get into the conversation. No, absolutely. I mean, this is the whole point of these type of... uh you know, discussions is to get people to take action, to move them to uh, to take uh, proper action, to join the good and forbid the evil. And so, inshallah, we hope that, um, you know, the community really stands uh, with Gaza now and uh, with the people who are suffering under relentless aerial bombardment and to support the organizations that are speaking out against this. You know, I'll tell you right now that since, you know, in the past 72 hours, our organization has received, has received probably no less than uh, 500 uh, media requests and community uh, re- requests. People want uh, not just to talk to the media, but they want us to help them with presentations. They want us to help them with, with information, with links, with flyers, with posters, with banners, with uh, protest information. With And so, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm glad people see us as an address, you know, uh, as an address to to this work. It's a, it's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to be in this position. But at the same time, you know, we are an organization with limited resources um, and, you know, uh, we we are unable to fulfill everybody's uh, request, uh, you know, just just frankly, um, uh, we have a very small staff. You know, our organization is, is limited in budget, so um, we try our best. But inshallah, you know, we uh, we can do what's right by our cause and by our people. But, uh, so, yeah, so please, please do support. Uh, you know the organizations that are doing this work and, and are, that are you know engaging in, in public debate and discussion about what's taking place because that is uh, that is a very very important aspect of, of of the fight that we're fighting right now. 
Yeah, so please, mercy without limits and American Muslims for Palestine. Uh, Palestine. I always want to say Palestine, you know, but I have to say Palestine because some people yeah. who may not know, <laughs> you know, we got to say AMP. Um, but Barakallahu Fiq for uh, uh, doing this uh, podcast episode, for taking this interview, you know, 500 media requests is insane. I can only imagine the type of like just having to reply to all these people or just even receiving all of that. Those and those notifications can be overwhelming, you know, but. You know, to move into the discussion, you know, the first place we begin, of course, as uh, as Muslims, right, is the Quran itself, right? Now, the word Philistine, Palestine, is not found in the Quran exactly. But however, mm-hmm. we do see the land itself where it's located is is given a name. And we see uh, one place I've seen that is Surah Al-Ma'idah, the 21st ayat. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, uh, mentioning how Musa, alayhi salam, was talking to Bani Israel. Sure. And he's uh, mm-hmm. telling them that we should enter this land and, you know, basically fight for the land because Allah is with us and we'll get this land. Now, of course, Bani Israel, being, being Bani Israel, as you will see uh, from reading the Quran, where they were like, you and your Lord, you let us know when these people are gone. You know, you let us know what happens. Right. So, Brother Tahir, please tell us what is Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa? What is that? Like, what what does that mean? Where is that located? Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, this is a very... Um important aspect of understanding uh, what this land means to us as Muslims because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions it in the Quran that means it is a nas Qur'ani that means it is something that is directly uh, revealed in revelation to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu which means that this is a central aspect of our aqidah because we are as Muslims we believe that we believe in the books and the prophets and the, and the angels and, and that's, that's those are the main tenets of our iman and so we cannot have that without understanding what our aqidah is and what are, what are understanding what exactly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to tell us. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes and defines this land as al-ard al-muqaddasa, and uh, that means al-ard al-muqaddasa, the land that is sanctified, that has a unique position and blessing. This is the only land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given this descriptor to in the Quran. No other place on earth is given this this. This, play, this, this sort of exact description um, in the Qur'an. And so this, this makes it a very unique uh, place in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the central tenets of, of Islam. That's number one. Number two is utilizing that term, al-muqaddasa, and its closeness and relationship to the root of the name of Allah, al-Quddus, mm-hmm. right? That means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in a way associating the sanctity of this land with him subhanahu wa ta'ala and giving it that designation of sanctity, um, making it a place that, according to one of the scholars, um, is the land of the prophets, that there has not been a single prophet that has not either that was not either born in or died in or passed through. Or, or had an involvement with or relationship to this land. And so this 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 means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has designated this place as a very blessed land and given it a very special status. And so what but what does that mean to us? Like how, how, what does that translate to us? You know, because someone might ask, like, okay, well, okay, this place is blessed, but what does that mean? So what that means for us is that as Muslims, we have a special duty and obligation towards this land. We have a special duty and obligation towards protecting it and maintaining its freedom. And that's how the Sahaba and other Muslims of the past viewed it as well. 
because they understood really well the connection that the Prophet also had to this land. And when the Prophet is describing this land as revealed to him in the Quran, it has a special meaning to him as well. Because he had a relationship with this land even prior to the Nabuwa, right? He used to go on the caravans, the mm-hmm. Shidat was Saif. You know, he would go to uh, to the Sham in 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 the summer and then to Yemen in the winter, right? And so, so he he was familiar with the land. He knew the land, and so Subhanallah, you know, when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made the miraculous night journey al Isra and Miraj, which is also narrated in the Quran, when Allah subhanahu wa taala says, Subhanallah, Asra bi Abdihi Layla in Surah Al Isra. Uh, so Allah says again here, this Masjid Al-Aqsa, the land by which its surroundings we have blessed. So subhanAllah, this is another sort of descriptor. He, Barakah and Taqdis, Muqaddasa. Right, so you have these two descriptors of this land. And so again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is re-emphasizing the importance of this land to us. And it's only the only other place that's mentioned in this way, to my knowledge, is Mecca. Mm-hmm. Right? So subhanAllah, this is this is an equivalency that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making here. Um, uh, to the land where the prophets received revelation, like Isa alayhi salam, and Ibrahim alayhi salam, and also the land where uh, where the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa also received revelation in Mecca. Uh, so, so here now we have this 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 framework that Muslims are given. So how did the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam deal with this? Well, it's interesting because when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made the night journey, the miraculous night journey, the Isra and Miraj to Palestine, to to Al Quds, to Al Bayt Al Maqdis, as they call it, in, in as it, as is mentioned in the Quran, Masjid Al Aqsa. The Prophet ﷺ, according to the narrations, led the other prophets in prayer. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you might think like, okay, well, you know, you, you might understand that because, you know, it's the last and final prophet, right? The Khatim al-Anbiya wa al-Mursaleen, and it's the, 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 the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen to be the last and final messenger and has given the revelation in the Qur'an, the complete message to, to mankind, right? But you might think like also like if this is a gathering of prophets, like maybe, you know, Adam alayhi salam might lead since he was the first prophet. Or like Ibrahim alayhi salam since, you know, he's considered the father of, of, of the al-Azmi min al-Rusul. But no, subhanAllah, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala designated the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu as the leader of, as the imam of the other prophets and messengers. And what does that show us? That tells us that the Ummah of Muhammad have a special duty and custodial relationship towards this land and towards this masjid in particular, Masjid Al-Aqsa. Allah did not make the gathering place in Mecca. Allah did not make the gathering place in Medina. Allah made the gathering place of the prophets in Masjid Al-Aqsa. And that also goes back to the Prophet's hadith about this land being the Ardul Mahshari Wal Manshar. So this is the land of gathering of the all mankind on the day of judgment and so again there's a significance of this uh here this is the land where uh you know there are many hadiths about about the Dajjal and the the the, mm-hmm. the antichrist and the, the battles there this so this is also a place of, of that and this is also Ardul Ribat as according to the uh to the uh to the uh to the famous hadith uh you know I actually read it to you here I have it it's probably I just I uh, was looking at it today before this uh before this session where um, Ibn Abbas, عنه, 
قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أول هذا الأمر نبوة ورحمة ثم يكون خلافة ورحمة ثم يكون ملكا ورحمة ثم يتكادمون عليه تكادم الحمر فعليكم بالجهاد وإن أفضل جهادكم الرباط وإن أفضل وإن أفضل رباطكم عسقلان عسقلان is right outside of Gaza north of north of um, uh, north of Gaza it's, it's, it's called Ashkelon now in Hebrew and this is the place that um, uh, is, is, is being told by according to the hadith and I'm going to translate it to you right now as Ibn Abbas narrates that the Prophet ﷺ said that the first of this matter i.e. you know the, the rule of Islam in the world is is prophethood and mercy, then caliphate and mercy, then kingship and mercy. And then they will fight over the kingdom like animals fight one another. So then what happens? They commit yourselves to jihad and best of jihad is ribat, defending the Muslim borders. And the best of ribat is that of Asqalan. And um, and this is a hadith Hassan Rawahu al-Tabarani. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have this in our body of text and, and narration about this Ard al-Muqaddasa. And the Ard Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa Al-Ladhi Barakna Hawla And the Prophet's Ummah has a unique obligation and duty towards towards this land due to that and, and the connection to it. And then even when we talk about the ascension, Al-Mi'raj, when the Prophet was taken up and received the command for prayer, right? And he received the command for prayer through Masjid al-Aqsa, right? Because mm-hmm. he's, he's making his ascension through Masjid al-Aqsa. And so the, the mechanism, our, manifest, our manifesting of belief as Muslims is connected to Masjid al-Aqsa, subhanAllah. You know, and that's why even when the Prophet ﷺ came back and, and was leading prayers of the, of the Muslims, they were praying towards Masjid al-Aqsa mm-hmm. for more than a year. They, they prayed towards Masjid al-Aqsa until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet sallallahu alayhi direct command to turn his face, uh, to turn your face towards Masjid al-Haram. And then finally the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa did that. And, uh, and, so, and so, so imagine that, you know, and then, you know, you ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, why was the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa praying towards Masjid al-Aqsa? And it's, it's precisely for the fact that he was the last and final messenger. And that he was following, subhanAllah, he was following the footsteps of his brother of prophets. And he, Isa alayhi salam, prayed in this direction. So subhanAllah, the natural inclination was to pray towards Masjid al-Aqsa. So this, this gives us like, as Muslims, like sort of a deep sense of, wow, this is, you know, this is serious. This is something that we should be concerned with. This is something that we should not take lightly as, as an ummah. And... And and I will tell you this, subhanAllah, like throughout history, Palestine, you know, has been ruled by different people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even 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 since Islam. Palestine in the in Masjid al-Aqsa has always been a place of importance. Has always been a place of importance. So even when the Fatimids in Egypt ruled, they made sure to 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 maintain and 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 and, and fix and, and and take care of Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, the Umayyin when they first emerged and 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 established the Masjid al-Aqsa and, and, and rebuilt the area and made the Dome of the Rock as we know it today, mm-hmm. uh, under Abdul Malik bin Marwan's rule, they made a strong effort to ensure that Masjid al-Aqsa would remain and be a prominent feature of uh, Muslim spiritual life. 
right? Because of the importance of it. But one of the things that I think was very critical is that the Sahaba, the way they viewed Al-Aqsa, and one of the anecdotes that I will share with people is the story of, of uh, Umar radiallahu anhu when he came to receive the keys of Jerusalem at the time. They called it Ilya. One of my favorite stories, by the way. Yeah, and I know there was like a, a viral video going around of this like American professor talking about this moment, right? When Umar, uh, I, I saw a lot of people like sharing it. It's like him giving a lecture about it. And, and it was true. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating moment in, in history where Umar radiallahu anhu, you know, came uh, when, and, he, and he usually would not come, right? He would usually not leave Medina. Uh, and it was a very unique situation where he left Medina at the uh, with the advice of, of Ali radiallahu anhu, who told him to, to go ahead. He had received a letter from uh, the front lines at the time, Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah, others who said, you know, uh, you know, the, the Sophronius, the leader of, of Jerusalem, or Iliyah, is, is requesting you to come personally and receive the keys. And so he did. Uh, he did, and he went, and he rode all the way up to uh, Al-Quds, and he, and he receives the keys and does his, you know, tour around the city, um, you know, and uh, is offered to pray. He wanted to pray, so he's offered to pray inside the church. He refuses. He comes outside. And he prays outside of the church and he, uh, you know, he stated the, the famous reason that if I had prayed in here that I'm, I feared that Muslims in the future would come and take over this place and make it uh, a mosque. And so he didn't want to compromise the, uh, the, the, the Christian community's um, uh, religious space by, by doing that. And so he, he went and prayed outside until today. And then at that spot where he prayed, they built a masjid there too. Um, and so subhanAllah, you know, that, that masjid still stands as masjid, masjid Umar. Uh, in, in Quds, it's still there uh, till today. And then they went to the grounds of where Masjid Al-Aqsa is. And obviously it was not a masjid at that time because it wasn't ruled by Muslims yet. There were no Muslims there yet. And so Umar and the Sahaba proceed to um, prepare the area to make it a masjid. And I want to remind you that, you know, Umar was the second Khalifa. And so this is years and years after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu And this is a lot of the Sahaba after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu sort of, they just committed themselves to the Jihad. You know, they kind of went out to the Futuhat and they just participated in the, you know, the conquest that the Muslims were engaged in at the time. And they just never came back to Medina. They just didn't want it. One of those people was Bilal. And we know the story of Bilal after the Prophet Sallallahu died. You know, he was asked to make Adhan and he couldn't. He started choking up and he just couldn't do it. Um, and so, but Bilal in that moment, subhanAllah, was on the area of Masjid al-Aqsa. He, he was part of the army that liberated Masjid al-Aqsa, subhanAllah. And the Sahaba are looking around as to who's going to make Adhan in Masjid al-Aqsa now that it's been liberated. And they can find no one more suitable mm-hmm. than, than Bilal ibn Rabah, subhanAllah. And so they ask him to make the Adhan. And after years of not making it then, imagine that for a second. Bilal gets up and makes the adhan in Masjid al-Aqsa. And I'll remind you, Bilal was the first to make adhan in Medina. Bilal was the first to make adhan in Mecca when the Prophet was victorious there. And now Bilal was the first to make adhan in Al-Quds, Al-Aqsa. The only human being that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed this honor upon, subhanAllah. And he starts making adhan and not a single Sahaba could hold their tears back. They were shedding tears because they knew 
the 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 profundity of that moment, right? It was a profound moment in the history of Islam, and they knew what it meant to be that as well, to be so close to the Prophet Sallallahu and to be so impacted by his death. And for me, that story really shows how connected the Sahaba were to this land, and how meaningful it was to them to fulfill the prophecy of our beloved Prophet Sallallahu in liberating this land as well. And so, you know. As, as the Ummah of Muhammad, you know, grew over time and, and now, subhanAllah, here we are in 2023 with, you know, 2 billion plus Muslims. There, there is still that deep connection and love for Masjid Al-Aqsa, still, like till today. You know, it's not like something that went away. And that the main reason for that is because, number one, it's part of our aqidah and people should learn it as, as Muslims. But also because, like, the people who we love, the Sahaba, who, who were... The, the, the men around the messengers, so to speak, are the ones who also loved uh, Al-Aqsa. And they, they lived <laughs> there, you know, after, after they opened the Al-Aqsa, a lot of Sahaba decided to stay. You know, they didn't want to, like, they didn't want to leave. You know, Khalid Mulid stayed in the Sham. You know, he, he stayed in, in Syria. Uh, Bilal ibn Rabah, so many, you know, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari stayed, you know, went to Turkey. You know, so a lot of these Sahaba, they just stayed, they just stayed there, you know. And, and there's so many Sahaba buried in uh in 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 al ard al muqaddasa today which is jordan and palestine you know if you want to say generally speaking and so till you know till now i think it, it has you know it, not just till now it's forever it will always have this 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 significance to the muslim ummah and it's derived from the way allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described it as al ard al muqaddasa as al masjid al aqsa alladhi and so, quick clarification, right? Um, now there's a hadith where the Prophet وسلم, um, I think it's uh, but he, he says, "Pray for our sham, right?" I think yeah. that, right? Yeah. Now, does, is that also included as a part of Muqaddasa? Is that also a part of the Holy Land, the Sham area? Is that all that area? Just to clarify. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a good question because you know, uh, scholars of Islam have debated for for years, centuries about what. What 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 Allah di means, right? Like, what, well, you know, the, the areas of which its surroundings we have blessed, and so what does that mean exactly? Does that mean like just the platform where the mosque is built, Al Aqsa, or does that mean like just broader region of Palestine and Jordan, or does that mean all of Sham? And so, some of the scholars will say, well, we put this debate to rest by looking at the other hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu and that they quote the hadith that you just mentioned. Mm. Right where where the Prophet says Allahumma barik lana fi shamina wa fi yaminina. Right, mm-hmm. and he, he mentions Yemen as well. Um, and then and then one of the persons asks him, you know, wa najdina ya Rasulullah. And then the Prophet sort of reiterates again, wa shamina. You know, and so and so he gives he gives a sense of like importance to this place. Again, the Prophet had a deep and, and loving connection to this place and and um, and its people. Subhanallah, it's, it's just it's, it's it's beautiful to see the um uh the depth to which the the connection goes between uh the the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and uh, the Ummah of Muhammad, right? Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right. Right? Our connection to that land, despite it not being a land in which we like, we don't have to make the salawat, the five salawat towards there, right? You never have to face there ever, right? You're not supposed to yeah. face there. Please don't face yeah. <laughs> there, right? Yeah. But the connection and just to see. The, the the history and the depth to which it goes right it's it, it's bigger than just uh the people there currently right and that's not 
to disrespect the people that are currently right. We empathize, yeah. and we're gonna get to that. But it's it's deep, right? It, it, it's connected to us. Now let's let's rewind a bit, right? So let's go back to the beginning portion of the uh, with the Quran, right? In Surah Maida, right? Now Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uh, was uh, describing Musa alayhi salam talking to Bani Israel about going into this holy land Musa. and freeing the holy land, and it will be theirs. But Bani Israel, mm-hmm. being who they were, were stubborn about it, and that didn't happen. Right. And it was such a hassle to get into the land that <laughs> Musa salam, sadly was not a lot. He wasn't buried there. Right. He was buried with a stone, yeah. pebble stone throw away. Right. Yeah. But he wasn't allowed to get in. Right. Now, one may ask right from that. They would say, OK, that that means that this land was given to the Israelite people. Right. Now, what the question saying? I want to ask you is with the land being given to the Israelite people, were there conditions given with the land itself? Right. What were these conditions given to the uh, to the Israelite people? Absolutely. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered this in another ayah in Surah Al-Anbiya, where he says, uh, That we have uh, set down, like we have written, in the Zabur that was revealed to Dawood, which is what the scholars say is the Torah of Musa. الأرض, that the land will be inherited by الصالحون, my rightly guided servants. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, well, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send this as a reminder to Dawood after, after it was revealed to Musa that Allah Israel enter the land, mm-hmm. the blessed land, the, the holy land, the sanctified land that I have written for you. Mm-hmm. And so some people would interpret this and say, well, see, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has written it for them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just make a commitment to a people like that, a specific group of people and say, this is your land for the rest of for the rest of eternity. Right? In the other ayah that I just mentioned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding Bani Israel through the revelation to Dawood alayhi salam because Dawood came after Musa alayhi salam, right? Mm-hmm. That means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling them there is conditions to this. This contract that we have. It's, it's a blessed land, surely. But you are not guaranteed to it. If you betray the covenant that you've made with Allah, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which we know that Bani Israel did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is, and that's, this is a whole other discussion, mm-hmm. are the modern day Zionists the descendants of Bani Israel? That's a whole other discussion. You just that's a whole other discussion, right? <laughs> right, and so and so maybe in actions and in, in, in deed, maybe, mm-hmm. but but are they blood relatives? No, no. In fact, if 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 anybody would be closely related to Bani Israel uh, from a genetic standpoint, and this has been studied quite. A bit. Um, it would be probably the Palestinians, <laughs> if we're going to be honest. With ourselves. So, so you know, it, it's it's if if you know, but but the, the Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is saying it's not it's not based on who you are as a people. It's based on what you believe. It's based on what you do. Right. And so Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is clearly making it known that the land will be inherited, will be inherited. Yarithuha uses this word specifically. Okay. By the rightly guided servants of Allah. 
So if you lose that, then the contract is null and void. No, no, definitely. That's, you know, I think that's something that, uh, we, that definitely needs to be highlighted. Right. And I think that it's one thing that's very interesting because when people go to this discussion, very few people, it's like, they don't want to draw attention to the Quran because the Quran, it highlights all of this. Right. But then what does it do? It validates and proves the claim that this is the truth of the word of, uh, of the most high God. Right. And brings yeah, yeah. validity to the religion of Islam itself. Right. You know, like so, we gotta like we yeah. gotta read like we gotta be like clear about how we read it, you know, like and how we understand the Quran because like I've I've literally seen this used like some people who misinterpret that ayah and say, well, look, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave it and, like halas, like we can't do anything about it, you know, this is it, like this is what no, bro, like what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala doesn't do injustice. Inna Allah haram ala nafs. Like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has forbade himself to be oppressive forbade oppression upon himself so that makes no sense why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give an oppressive people uh, uh, rights sacred rights to a land when they have betrayed every covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes no sense so we have to be yani, when we do our tafsir yani, and, and, and by the way the scholars of all like this is like you know this is like there's no question about this within Islamic tafsir like uh, within, within scholarship on tafsir it's it's really clear, you know, um, but I think some people who read the Quran on their own and just not really understand the context or don't read the other ayahs that, that come in other surahs, you know, later on, don't yeah, fully understand. Definitely a tip: please do do not just read a ayah alone in isolation, right? <laughs> look at it in right. a full context. But the next, you, you know, because when you look at it, right, they broke the covenant and then they were pushed out of the Holy Land and then they returned again and then they broke it again and they were pushed out, right? And we see this process happened repeatedly until finally it's all right yeah it's done right you guys yeah. it no longer belongs to you guys exclusively right so after the last time it was broken and we can say that last time probably was perhaps after the attempt to uh uh, uh murder nabi isa alayhi salam, right after right, that exactly. we would say is the last time right who inhabited the land after who were these inhabitants and what what were they originally what were they called and how did they get to this land Right, the people who inherited the Holy Land post the Bani Israel. Yeah, I mean, you know, even while Bani Israel was in the Holy Land, there was other people living there. Right, I mean, even uh, in the other ayat where Bani Israel tells Musa, "You go and your Lord fight for this land," you know why? Because there's other people already living there. Mm -hmm. Right, there's other people already there. Uh, you know that that you know that that uh, that uh, that even when Dawood Ali Salam went with his army. Under the uh, under the uh, under Talut as a king, you know, to fight against Jalut, Jalut was part of those people. So, so obviously there there's a there's another community, there's a group of people that live in that land. And of course, you know, the the, the historical documents and narratives about this are are vast, you know. And I, I would recommend a book by Nur Masalha. It's mm. called um, I think it's called Palestine: A Four Thousand Year History. It talks about all this stuff basically and based on real like archaeological finds and like who were the original people and the canaanites and the hittites and the different people that lived in in philistine in that land um uh for for for, for centuries i mean for for a very very long time and so bani israel was never the exclusive inhabitant of that land i mean it's always been a mixed bag right now bani israel may have had authority, may have had a kingdom at one point 
in that land, but were they the only exclusive group of people ethnically wise? No, no, no. I mean, that's just even, even, you know, in, in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, mm-hmm. there are different tribes and different peoples living. You know, we had the Habashis, we had the Yemenis, we had the Najdis, we had the Hijazis, all, we're all living in, in that region. So there's, there's always a mixture of people. This doesn't make sense to say that there was an exclusive ethnic, ethnically based kingdom that ruled and only exclusively had access to that land. So that's, and that would be a that would be a mischaracterization of the kingdom that Sulaiman alayhi salam had in uh, in Palestine at the time, right? I think that's a very important point that you bring up. That I don't think most people know that it was diverse in the uh, population, right? The demographics of who were actually there. You know, people think it was either one group or the other, right? It was either people were Bani Israel uh, of the Israelite descent or they're Arab, right? But it, they didn't know maybe it's people of different backgrounds who also inhabited this land. But as we progress through the, the historical timeline, right? So these people are there now. So we have the Khulafa Rashidin, right? The the, the rightly guided uh, uh, caliphs, right? There's always a weird word saying that in English, caliph. I know. Right? It's weird. I know. Because, you know, in English, they never really figured out how to say khalifa. You know, <laughs> you know the they didn't say the rightly guided successors. Yeah, it's they just like, say caliphs. It's, it's, it's weird. It's like, <laughs> either way, the people who, uh, the close companions of the, after the Prophet, وسلم, who inherited uh, guided uh, leadership of the Ummah, they, uh, of course, went, they conquered the Roman Empire to the west and then the Persian Empire to the east, right? Now, as they did that, mm-hmm. they obtained uh, Umar Khattab, anhu. He, he, under his uh, time, they gained control over the Holy Land, right? So now it's under the Muslim rule. Now, please, as we look from there on down, you could say like to the Crusades, but then Salahuddin Al-Ayubi, he took it back. Then Ottomans had control. But in the time that it was under the rulership of the Muslim Ummah, please describe what is that, like what what made it unique, right? Compared to how it's ruled under different empires, you know? Because one thing that I will say to add to the conversation, you know, um, that I was explaining is Islam views the other two of the monotheistic faiths as faiths that are were sent down right but uh, were yeah. eventually corrupted over time right but still respects them in their right to worship right yeah. in in that land in that land right and compared to where is the others it's like it's kind of an exclusive or not whereas Islam is like inclusive of all three but please talk about what did that uh rulership look like underneath the Muslim rule during the time it was ruled yeah, by. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you know, that that's a very good question because Umar um set the tone for what Muslim rule in that land would look like. And one of the first things he did when they took over was um, instituting a compact like a pact with with the local community there. Mind you, Muslims were a minority, you know, for the vast majority of time that they ruled in that period. And so he, uh, you know, they recognized Muslim sovereignty over the land, but Muslims also wanted to recognize their rights to worship in that land. And so they, they he instituted what's called Al-Uhd al-Umariyya, which is like a Umari compact, or I don't know what they call it in English. Mm-hmm. And it had like specific guidelines and um, mandates that the Muslims would have to abide by um, in their relationship with the local community, primarily the Christians who were represented by Sophronius, the um, 
the representative of that community at the time. And so that really, I mean, it was that, that document is, is found, I mean, to be done in that period, you know, I'm talking about, you're talking about the, you know, the 700s, man, like <laughs> to have that kind of, that kind of um, mutual understanding and agreement and the Muslims abided by it because that's what Umar set as the terms for um, uh, the freedom of worship and the, the, the protection of those communities that existed in, um, in, in, in that, in, in, in Ard al-Muqaddasa at the time. And the reason for that, as you said, is because Muslims have a profound respect for Ahlul Kitab. Uh, Muslims have a profound respect for the Prophet Isa salam, and Musa salam, and all the Prophets. And they also have a profound respect and acceptance of and full faith in what was revealed to those Prophets. Right. So we, we, that, this to is not a problem that, for us. Yeah, to add to that, yeah. like it's actually a central part of our aqidah to believe this. Exactly. Like if you disbelieve exactly. this, you are out of the fold of Islam, you know. Exactly. So for them, it was a serious thing. Like it wasn't like an optional thing or just a matter of strategy just to keep things, you know, just to keep resistance at bay. No, no, no. Like this is like, this is who they are. You know, like this is what, this is what Islam is about. And so based on Al-Uhd al-Umariyya, and based on the fact that Umar al-Law'an designated land, the land of Al-Aqsa and the surrounding areas as Islamic waqf, as a trust, then it was a communal responsibility, not one individual's responsibility, right? To, to maintain and protect that land. And so, and, and, and that still stands today. Like, Al-Quds is a waqf. You know, like Al-Aqsa is a waqf. That the land, the land, that all that land is a waqf. And so it's actually still till today managed by an Islamic waqf. Hmm. And so nobody can buy it or sell it. You can't touch it. It's not something that you could barter with. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why the occupation of Jerusalem today by the Israelis is such a serious matter of concern to the Muslims. Because it's, it's, a, it's a collectively and communally um, um, designated property that we, are all have, that we all have a responsibility and obligation towards. Right? It's not just some... It's not just the Palestinians that have to be concerned with this. So, so this is like, this is how, this is Umar set the tone. And then Muslims throughout history, from the time of the Khilaf al-Rashida, to the Umayyads, to the Abbasids, to even the Fatimids who, who ruled uh, um, uh, Al-Quds at the, uh, uh, for, for, for a period of time, Al-Mamalik, the Mamluks who came from, uh, from Egypt, the Salajiqa, right, the, the, the Seljuk Turks, Salah uh, al-Din al-Ayyubi and, and, and the uh, Ayyubid dynasty, right? Going all the way to the Ottomans. And then the Ottoman control over uh, over over Quds, which, which, by the way, the Ottomans didn't take over till, till a while later. It took, mm-hmm. it took them like a couple hundred years to get to, <laughs> to from the establishment of the Ottoman Empire to come down to to look. So, 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 it took, so, so there was different periods of time where it was ruled by different Muslim rulers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there was a, a significant chunk of time uh, a little more, uh, close to 90 years, where that land was ruled by the Crusaders. But you saw the stark difference, right, between when the land was ruled by the Crusaders, for example, and when the land was owned and ruled by the Muslims. Crusaders, I mean, everybody knows, that I don't have to reiterate, the history is clear, right? Crusaders came in, bloodbath, massacred Muslim, Christian, Jew, anybody who got in their way, and it was, it was, it was terrible, right? And, um, you know, there's a f- famous Ridley Scott film, uh, what is it called? Uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where uh, there's that famous scene right after Salah al-Din liberates Jerusalem, and he, 
he's walking through uh, a cathedral and he lifts up the cross that was on the floor and he puts it on the on the uh, on the table in front of him and that was sort of a sign like a sort of a a um, uh, a demonstration of how the muslims viewed their respect for other faiths despite the fact that the crusaders were claiming to do this in the name of god mm-hmm. right but the muslims knew that these guys weren't acting in the name of god or else they wouldn't be doing that and, uh, and then otherwise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have given them victory and he didn't. So, mm-hmm. so clearly, you know, they were, so, so they, so, so there is that, there's that sense of like communal responsibility towards all those communities. And there's the openness to, to faith and, and worship. And that's why there has always been and continues to be a, a, a Christian and Jewish community in Al-Ard uh, al-Muqaddasa, especially under, under, under Muslim rule. So that for us is not. It's not a contradiction to our belief, and it's not something that you know we have a uh, something that we grapple with. It's something that's completely natural for Muslims to uh, to be accepting of and and um, and, and to support. Inshallah. Now, as we 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 uh, progress through, let's get a little more modern, right? So now we come to Palestine, Palestine, right? So this this name itself, right? Where did it originate from and like what does it mean? What does Palestine mean? What does Palestine mean? And like when's the first time this term was ever used? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's um it has its roots in the Roman Empire when the Romans ruled Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and, and the Romans based it on the people that were living there at the time, the Philistines. Mm-hmm. They were known as the Philistines. And um and so they just named that land Palestina in Latin. Mm-hmm. And um and so that name sort of stuck, you know, uh, to, to modern, modern times and, um, and, and, and it exists today because, you know, in Arabic, we don't, it's not an Arabic name. Philistine is, is not an Arabic name, but it's, uh, it is the name that, that, that describes the land of, of Philistine today. The Lord of the in the Islamic scholarship, is... they would call it Baytul Maqdis. Yeah. That's the name I hear for it. Uh, Beitul Maqdis, yeah. Al-Quds, those are the names I hear typically. Or Al-Quds yeah. is Jerusalem, correct? Yeah, Al-Quds is Jerusalem, mm-hmm. exactly. And then Beitul Maqdis is the area, so. the broader area because they, you know, they, they define it in different ways of scholarship. And mind you, like, you know, like it's important to keep in mind that, you know, these modern borders that we have today didn't exist back then. And so um, the, the naming also matters in that sense. You know, like you're talking about when they talk about Baytul Maqdas or the Ard al for them, you know, uh, Al-Karak in Jordan is part of that. You know, for them, uh, Irbid in Northern Jordan is part of that. For them, Sham and Damascus is part of that. And, and Tripoli and Beirut and uh, Saida, that's part of that, you know, sort of Akka and, and Gaza. And so all that is, is, is Ard al-Muqaddas according to some of the scholarship. Baytul Maqdas is, is a broader regional um, understanding of what of what that is, and so it's only under, uh, you know, the the colo- in, in the colonial period uh, under the British mandate when when these borders, these strict borders of what is this and what is that became sort of the thing, right? That we um, have you know, that unfortunately hey, we're, right, gonna, we're gonna definitely tap on that. One thing I'll say is, wow, Subhanallah! I just learned that Philistine is not an Arabic word, so. All my yeah. Palestinian friends, I will troll you for a little bit for that. Um, no, <laughs> all love, all love. But you know, um, real quick, one more time also, we do want to uh, just remind people, please donate to Mercy Without Limits. Please donate to help save children. We want to save children. 80, like I said, 
43% of Gaza's population, as I've seen, was under the age of 14, which is about 860,000 children. Please donate. We're not funding a war. We're just trying to save children. And please donate to American Muslims for Palestine, their causes. They're, they're being overwhelmed with uh, trying to just people who want responses from them and they need all the support they can get. A grassroots organization. Let's please help out as best as we can, inshallah. You know, but to move to mm-hmm. post, like, we're going to get to, like, the, let's say the world wars in the modern day, right? Let's get to that. So I'm going to use a word. And I hope that people watching don't get upset when I use this word. How was Israel founded? Yeah, I mean, the modern state of Israel as we know it today uh, had its roots, of course, in the uh, the Zionist movement that emerged in the late 1800s. Um, real quick, and so- you, let me just interrupt you real quick. Please detail what that is exactly, right? What is the Zionist yeah. movement? Just briefly, if you can like touch touch on that. I don't want to like get too far from like this, but I, that's very important that people know like what that is. Yeah, yeah. Sort of the uh, the intellectual father of uh, Zionism was a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, who who wrote uh, his very famous uh, piece called Judenstaat, which is the Jewish state. Uh, in the late 1800s in, in Austria. And uh, European Jew uh, didn't believe in God, wasn't a, wasn't a devout believer, but realized and thought that the only way that Jews around the world could be safe and uh, could be strong is to establish a state for themselves. And mind you, late 1800s, what was Europe doing at the time in the world? They were colonizing the world, right? All of the world, like 80% of the global landmass was colonized by just a couple of European countries, France, you know, Belgium, Spain, uh, the UK, um, and and so in Germany. And so you had like these, uh, you, you know, you had these um, colonial powers who were sort of just dividing up the world how they how they saw fit. And the Zionist movement wanted to model their 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 project after European colonial ventures around the world, right? And so they started sort of contemplating um, where they would establish this Jewish state, right? And and this is at the, this is at a period you know sort of post Westphalia, where you know we're talking about West the Westphalian doctrine, which sort of established the modern state as we know it today. Because you know before it was just like empires, right? Mm-hmm. Kingdoms. Monarchies. And so once the, the idea of a state as we know it today sort of emerged, Zionists also were sort of thinking through, like, how, how do we establish our own state? And um, and they began um, coalescing around the idea of uh, establishing a Jewish state in the historic land of Palestine. Mind you, the British did not have control over Palestine in 1897 when this was being discussed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Ottoman Empire did. The Ottoman Empire did. And so the Zionist movement went to the last Ottoman Khalifa, Abdul Hamid II, and, 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 and gave him a, a, an offer. They said, we'll pay you a, a, a sum of money. I forget the exact amount, several million pounds. And uh, you give us uh, Palestine. Uh, you give us, you give us uh, Jerusalem. And he, and he refused. He told them, you know, uh, uh, get out of my face. I'll never give up the land that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, prophesied for the moment and that the, the Sahaba worked to liberate. And so and um, and so they basically told him, well, that, that's your loss because you're going to lose everything now. 
And so they knew what was coming because the uh, Ottoman Empire at the time was known as the quote-unquote sick man of Europe. And mm -hmm. so uh, they knew that the colonial ventures that the British and the French were already engaged in at the time in dismantling the Ottoman Empire were going to intensify. And so they put their eggs in the basket of the British Empire at the time who, um, uh, in, in, in fighting World War I, uh, you know, obviously uh, in alliance with um, with France and 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 and, uh, and and the United States, of course, um, defeated uh, the Axis powers, which were the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And we know what happened to the Austro-Hungarian Empire; it was completely dismantled. Um, it was created into different states. Germany faced this repercussion, right? And um, and of course. Uh, and, and, and the Ottoman Empire as well was dismantled after uh, World War I. Now, the Khilafah remained uh, technically until the 1920s, right? World War I ended in, in the 19-teens, right? Mm -hmm. But the Khilafah completely uh, was, was abolished in the 1920s by the Turkish parliament. 1924, uh, actually, too. Next year, we'll make it 100 years. Right. Right, right, right. So, so I mean, we're talking about less than 100 years. Eh? It's not that, I mean, it's not that long ago that we had a Khalifa. You know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy to think about that, right? Um, and and that's where the, the British and the French began divvying up the land that was the Ottoman Empire now under their control. And so the French and the British uh, came to an agreement, so famously known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Uh, between one French and one British man who basically sat down, had a map in front of them and sort of carved up the lands based on what they thought was most appropriate for them and their empires. And so uh, what we know today as modern Syria and Lebanon uh, went under the control of France. And what we know today as modern Iraq, Jordan and Palestine went under the control of the British. And the British um, took over Palestine um, uh, immediately after World War One, the uh, British general who entered Jerusalem, yeah. right, General Allenby, made a very famous statement. Mm -hmm. And just to just show you, like, sort of Europe's fascination with, with Salah al-Din and the Crusades, um, made a very famous statement. He said, uh, today the Crusades are over. SubhanAllah. So they were acting to undo what Salah al-Din had done 800 years before, which is to liberate Al-Quds. So they were very clear about that. And 1917, the British officially committed themselves to the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Palestine through what's called the Balfour Declaration. Through the Balfour Declaration, uh, there was a man by the name Arthur Balfour, uh, who was a representative of the British government, who sent a letter to Lord Rothschild, who was a representative of the Zionist movement in the UK, um, clearly outlining the British government's commitment to the establishment of a Jewish state in, quote, and I kid you not, the land of Palestine. It's called that in the letter. It's so funny because Zionists will argue, oh, there is no such, there was no such thing as Palestine before, you know, they're, they're constantly arguing that just to sort of myth-make and, and, and sort of create propaganda around this. And so the British, early on, even though the British had a, had, had a mandate over Palestine themselves, they were occupying Palestine, were committed to the idea of establishing a Jewish state. And so they, in fact, set up the infrastructure 
for an exclusively Jewish state in Palestine. And what do I mean by that? I, what I mean is that the Zionist movement was already uh, beginning to send uh, settlers to uh, Palestine. And so you have um, different phases of Zionist um, uh, uh, settlement of Palestine mm -hmm. and uh, what they call aliyahs. And you could look that up. There's like several phases, like three or four different phases, like in the initial outset. Oh, I've and heard of that term before. We, so it has phases. To yeah. It. Aliyah. So like a lot of like a lot of like people now, like a lot of like American Jews, for example, right now, like young American Jews will go fly into Tel Aviv and they'll do what's called aliyah, which is basically where they go claim Israeli citizenship, which gives them the right to own land in Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they have nothing to do with it, they're just a kid from Boston, right? But, mm -hmm. but because of their Jewish lineage and their heritage, they, they, they are able to claim that. So that's what the Zionist movement wanted to do. They wanted to establish uh, um, their presence in Palestine. And so you have these, 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 these waves of, of Jewish migration from all over, from all over Europe, um, and primarily Eastern Europe into into Palestine, and, and while initially it wasn't like something of concern to to the Palestinian community, it eventually started becoming a big problem. Primarily because the Palestinian people are uh, uh, were a um, were a farming people. They were a, a people who 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 worked the land um, and and lived off the land. And 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 some of them owned the land, but some of them didn't own the land. Like it wasn't owned by them, although they worked it. They're the indigenous people. They worked it, right? But it was because the, you know at the time of the Ottoman Empire, land ownership and land rights were a mixed bag. You know, you could have someone from Syria who owns land in Palestine because again they didn't have these borders, right? It, it, it wasn't like so you had a landowner who lived in Iraq, but also. You know, had you know had had workers working, the Palestinians themselves working and living in, in Palestine on that land and, and cultivating it, so they could make. So that that was something that was common, right? It wasn't it wasn't common, and so the Palestinians started finding themselves dispossessed. The British were taking lands and were giving them to the Zionist settlers that were coming in, and the Zionist movement, which uh, initially needed Palestinian labor to cultivate and and run the land. Um, became more ideologically driven and exclusively only wanted Jewish labor for the land. So that now you have a Palestinian community who's not only lost their land, but now they're economically disenfranchised because they can't even work the land anymore, right? And so this, for this, in this period from 1917 to 1947, those 30 years that the British ruled Palestine, you saw a systematic dispossession of Palestinians of their land, and their uh, and, and and a dismantlement of their economy, right? And so the British, on top of that, understood that if this was uh, you know the Palestinians are going to explode, they're going to they're going to fight back. And so that's exactly what happened in the 1930s. Um, there was a massive Palestinian uprising, right? That took place for about three years, and the British responded with absolute brute force, crushed the uprising, and any potential and any potential for a Palestinian body politic to emerge, which means that if there was a potential for Palestinians to organize, which they were doing, they're meaning they had their own Palestine Congress, they're trying to establish their own forms of government, the British at every step of the way prevented Palestinians from doing that, while at the same time allowing the Zionist movement to do that, to have their councils, to have their representatives, not just that, 
they were allowing Zionists to import and bring in weaponry and train the settlers on the kibbutzes to arm themselves and, and engage in our military warfare in the event that they had to fight. And so imagine that, I want you to imagine that now that the Palestinian people who are occupied by the British are being denied ability for political sovereignty and denied economic development and being dispossessed from their lands at the same time. All of this happened under British rule. So when people talk about the state of Israel, like how, how is it possible that Palestinians you know, just lost their land in 1948? Well, it, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like a one-time event. This was a process that was taking place for more than 30 years, right? That the British were instituting. Colonialism is, 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 is ugly. You know, it's, it's, it's a dirty game. You know, any, any colonized people around the world will know that, right? Mm -hmm. But in the event that, in the case of the Palestinians, we're not just talking about colonization here where a group comes and extracts resources and then leaves. No, we're talking about settler colonization where the group comes, extracts resources and settles on the land and removes the native population exterminates the native population in order to have exclusive rights over the land. Which other places in the world did that? Do you know that? Which other places in the world did that? Uh, I think uh, they just had a holiday recently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Indigenous America, Peoples Day. Canada yeah. is, 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 is a settler colony where you, you ethnically cleanse the native population and you replace them with a settlers. And that's exactly what the Zionist movement was doing. And the Zionists, early Zionists modeled their 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 system and their plan on the American system. They actually would view, they, they if you if you look at read early Zionist literature, they quite literally use examples from American history and say, look, look what they did in the United States. And they were successful in, in removing the natives. And they and they called they would call them savages in, in their in their literature. And so they had this they had this conception that you know on one hand, they're arguing that this is a land for a people, for a people without a land, so that they're basically saying that they're erasing Palestinians completely. And on the other hand, they're saying, oh, well, they're savages and we have to remove them. And so we have to make the desert bloom because these people don't know how to cultivate their own land. Right. And so like literally, you know, they literally would say that Israel makes the desert bloom, which basically basically means that, you know, through our modernity, through our uh, practices, through our Europeanness, through our whiteness, we can cultivate and make this land better. Whereas these native people, they don't know how to do it, even though they relied on Palestinians to teach them how to cultivate the land, just like white settlers required Native Americans to, to teach them how to cultivate the land. And so it's, it's, it's crazy the parallels that we're seeing, but on a microcosmic level. And so when we discuss how the state of Israel emerged, it emerged in the context of decades of Palestinian dispossession, decades of... Um, oppression and, 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 and murder of Palestinian leadership and, and imprisonment of, of Palestinians. I mean, you're talking about just a massive colonial project that the British were engaged in. And so when the British announced formally that they were going to leave on May, in May 1948, the Zionist movement was preparing to declare the state of Israel. And they were preparing to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from their towns and villages so that they can have a demographic balance because they knew that the population of Palestinians was more than the population of Jews, right? But in order for them to have full control and establish their state, they needed to create a demographic balance. And so they needed to expel a large amount of Palestinians from their land so they can establish that demographic balance. And so that's exactly what they did. 
from the period from 1947, before the British left, to 1949, is what we call the Nakba, or the catastrophe. And that's the period in which the Zionist movement engaged in the systematic ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. More than 750,000 people. 750,000, not just like, you know, 700,000 people. I'm talking about 700,000 out of 1.5 million Palestinians at the time. So you're talking about half the Palestinian population was ethnically cleansed from their land, was displaced, was removed from their indigenous homeland. And 500 Palestinian villages and towns were completely erased, were razed, were destroyed. And so you're talking about something of catastrophic proportions taking place at a time right after World War II. Um, and ironically, the British used the British used Palestinians as recruits in their army in World War II, right? The British used Palestinians in the army in World War II against to fight the Nazis. Right, Palestinians fought in the British army to defeat the Nazis that liberated the liberated Jews from Auschwitz. That's crazy. And now here we have a Jewish state being established on Palestinian land at the expense of the Palestinian people. You know, just hearing all of that is just it's like subhanAllah. Like just hearing that what that 30 year period was like, it, it the first question that brings to mind that I think our listeners should uh look to is to figure out what exactly was the British fascination with the Holy Land? What were they fa so fascinated about? What made them have this connection to the Holy Land and to supporting the Jewish cause for finding a homeland? That's that's one thing. I, I'll let people, because I want us to get sidetracked, but I think that's something people should look into. But to fast forward, it, so please explain, like, as we progress now, right? So, you know, the Palestinian people, they... Uh, assisted the uh, Jewish settlers in le learning how to till the land, how to cultivate the land, how to, you know, maybe what, what, what is good on the land, what grows best here and things of that nature. Right. So since then, and then you have, uh, you said the Nakba, right, which the, was the ethnic cleansing. They did uh, half of the population was wiped out. It's like the relationship, it started with, let's have a handshake. And then it was slapped. Well, it was a handshake. Then it was a slap that came after to the Palestinian people. So since the inception of Israel as a country, right, please detail, like, what's the relationship been like with the Palestinian people? And over time, has it gotten better or has it gotten worse? I mean, Israel is a settler colonial project that seeks to erase Palestinians. There is no relationship getting better. You know, it's like <laughs> it's just been a systematic day by day genocide of Palestinians that is taking place sometimes in mass numbers, as we've seen in the past two days, with hundreds of people killed in, in one day, um, and sometimes a slow and, 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 and deliberate death that is exacted on the Palestinian people. Um, and so there are periods of immense suffering and, and displacement. And then there are there's the sort of the, the normal periods where you know, Palestinians are enduring living under occupation, living under military occupation. Um, so, look, Israel is not going to stop until they've accomplished what they want to accomplish. And I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we think that this will just stop when Israel realizes that, like, you know, 
you know, that they're doing the wrong thing. You know, I think that's that's silly. Colonizers don't wake up one day and say, oh, you know, we're doing the wrong thing. We need to, we need to stop that. No, I mean, that, and that's why the Palestinians today are rising up and saying, you know what, we need to change. We need to, we need to, we need to flip the tables because we've been suffering for 75 years under Zionist colonization. And then 30 more years before that under British rule, you know, so now we're talking about more than 100 years of Palestinian suffering under colonial rule. And, and, and they're done and we're done with it. Full stop. We're done with it. We're not, we're not going to, I mean, it, it, and Palestinians have been done with it. It's not like, you know, they accepted it or they, you know, were docile victims mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. No, no. I mean, Palestinians have been resisting occupation and colonialism for a hundred years. I mean, from the moment Balfour Declaration was is, issued in 1917, Palestinians were very keenly aware of what the intentions were for the Zionist movement at the time. I mean, it's not like, you know, they were, they were caught unaware that all these years and just, you know, were deceived. You know, no, no, no. Like they, they knew what they were trying to do, and hence why Palestinians in 1920s and 1930s and 1940s were resisting the idea of the establishment of a Jewish state because they knew what that would mean. That would mean their full dispossession. That would mean their full ethnic cleansing, and that's exactly what took place in 1947, 1948, 1949, and so and continues to take place today. The Nakba never ended for us. It's something that continues till today, and so. You know, I think I think for us now, like that's if we want if we want to bring it back to like what's happening, you know, now obviously it's 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 it's, it's you have to look at it in the context of, of the historical root of the problem, which is occupation, which is ethnic cleansing and, and, and colonization. You you know, like I heard a quote from somebody. They call it Gaza the world's largest open uh, prison, right? Open air prison. Open air mm -hmm. prison. Yeah, there we go. The largest open air prison. I was like, Subhanallah, like. I understood what it was, but that was my first time hearing that terminology. Please detail yeah. what what is that? Like, what does that mean exactly for somebody who may hear that? If they hear open air prison, yeah. I mean, for, well, first of all, I guess we'll explain wh where Gaza is on the map, right? And just for for your listeners, um, you know, Gaza is a um, a coastal uh, city, coastal region of Palestine. It constitutes a very small percentage of historic Palestine itself. Um, but is, is, is a beautiful place. My family's from Gaza. Um, and, and, um, it's always had historical significance in Palestine. Uh, in fact, um, when the Palestinian authority was established in the early nineties, uh, Gaza served as sort of like a, almost like a pseudo capital of Palestine for a bit, uh, you know, global and like international community, you were setting up, you know, like embassies were set, being set up in Gaza, uh, in the early nineties. Uh, to represent their countries to the Palestinians. And so there was an airport in Gaza as well. You know, so, so Gaza's always had political significance in, 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 in Palestine uh, for quite some time. And it sort of rests right there on the Mediterranean Sea, right at the cross-section between Egypt and, and, and Palestine, which means that it's at the cross-section between Asia and Africa, which is a very strategic, uh, you know, place, historically speaking. I mean, even go back to the time of the pharaohs, they wanted to control Gaza because of its importance for trade and, and whatnot. And so... Uh, it's always been an important place to uh, to be, and even Alexander the Great fought uh, at great cost to take over Gaza and besieged Gaza as well. And and the Mongols uh, actually were defeated, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, in Gaza uh, under the leadership of uh, the Mamluk uh, Baybars, who, who 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 dealt the the final blow to the to the Mongol advance. Uh, so so Gaza has a long history. It's it's crazy. Like Gaza has a long long history. 
and it's uh, it's a place of uh, of immense um, uh, beauty and, and culture and, and and history. And so I'm I'm very I'm very proud of that place. Imam al-Shafi'i was from Gaza, was born uh, in Gaza. Um, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani uh, was also born in Asqalani in Gaza. So there's some major Muslim scholars who are from Gaza uh, as well. And then they even say that the uh, the grandfather of the Prophet وسلم, Hashim, uh, was buried in, in Gaza. Until today, Gaza has the nickname of Ghazit Hashim. Uh, Hashim's Gaza, they call it, basically, um, until today. So so it has a deep connection to the, the family of the Prophet وسلم, as well. So that's Gaza. Uh, just you know, you know, in a in a in a snap, you know, if you wanna if you wanna consider that. How did Gaza get to this place? Well, in two thousand five, uh, Israel decided to withdraw its a uh, couple thousand settlers that were living in Gaza. At the time, uh, you know, Israel uh, in nineteen sixty seven, Israel occupied Gaza. Um, in nineteen forty eight, when Israel was established, Israel did not have control over Gaza. It took them another 20 years until 1967 to control Gaza. And once they controlled Gaza, they started setting up uh, settlements inside Gaza and established uh, settlers there and had a full military occupation of Gaza from 1967 <clears throat> until uh, 2005 when, um, when the settlers were finally uh, removed from Gaza. Um, and... So the Israelis essentially changed their way of occupying Gaza. Instead of occupying Gaza from the inside, now they were occupying Gaza from the outside. And in 2007, um, uh, Israel laid a full land, air, and sea blockade and siege on Gaza. And so for the past 16 years, Gaza has been under siege. And uh, you know, some might ask, like, what does that mean? Like, you can't go in or out? No. You can't go in or out unless Israelis allow you to go in or out. Um, food, water is calculated by the Israelis, literally by the calorie. There's literally they, they count how much food is necessary to keep Gazans alive, and that's it. That's wait, all. It, that's all. Wait, 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 wait. Let's stop. Wait, wait, wait. Pause, pause. pause yeah. Pause. They calculate how Look many calories. Look it up. There is there's 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 a whole section of the Israeli military that focuses on how much stuff is allowed to go into Gaza, food-wise, medicine, uh, construction materials, water, electricity. It's all controlled by an occupying power. The Gazans don't have control over it. Okay? And so people have been living under these conditions for 16 years, almost two decades, bro. Like, think about that for a second. Like, you have a little brother? Uh, I have a younger sister. Oh, younger sister. Yeah. Like a little, I mean, imagine like imagine like a younger like a young like a sibling that was born in Gaza at the time, right? They they would have never lived life not under siege. What what does it mean? You can't travel when you like. There's no airport. You know, it's not like you can just go like right now. Like, hey, brothers, how about we do a trip to Turkey? How about we do a trip to to Andalus? You know, how about nah? You can't. There's none of that. You're living in your neighborhood. That's it. Twenty two square miles. That's it. Right. Gaza is a, just a little bit bigger than Washington, D.C. Where, where are you from, brother? Uh, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah. So, OK, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually uh, not not that far from the size of Indianapolis. Right. So mm -hmm. so imagine that. But 2.1 million people live there. So it's the most densely populated place uh, on Earth. And because of the power crisis 
Gaza's sanitation system, water purification, all has, has been shot now. It's, it's destroyed. So I remember I went to Gaza in 2009 and I turned on the water tap, you know, to wash my face and the water was salty, like salty, like seawater salty. I'm like, what? And so the, my family looked at me, they're like laughing, you know, yeah, yeah we pump seawater because like, there's no pure water anymore. Like the water aquifer was destroyed by the Israeli settlers when they <clears throat> were in Gaza from, from 1967 to 2005, they completely destroyed the water aquifer. <clears throat> you have a situation where it's horrendous. And the United Nations knew this. They even issued a report, I think back in like 2014 or 2010, that Gaza would be unlivable by the year 2020. But Gaza was already unlivable at that time when they issued the report. You know, they were just being generous, right? Like, bro, that's crazy. Like, how, how, Human beings cannot live there. And uh, some very famous scholars, a Harvard scholar named Sarah Roy, uh, wrote uh, a lot about Gaza. She lived in Gaza for quite some time. And she wrote a whole book about the de-development of Gaza. You know, like most, most places in the world, you know, they're being developed. You know, they're kind of rising up. They're... They're they're you know, they're building. They're they're industrializing. They're becoming more commercialized. They're et cetera et cetera. There's tourism. Gaza is having de-development. Gaza is having de-development, and she writes about that. Um, and so I highly recommend reading her work, Sarah Roy, from Harvard University. Incredible scholar. And so this is the situation we're talking about, bro. Gaza is 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 dying, and people are dying a slow death there. I mean, the suicide rate is astronomical in Gaza. The uh, malnutrition in Gaza is just ridiculous. Children don't have the necessary nutrients to build their bodies properly, bro. You know what I mean? Like to grow properly. I mean, that's that's crazy to me that this would be allowed, right? And that this would not be condemned by everyone in the world, right? And that the Muslims would rise up and like, yo, no, 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 like, let's, and that you know that and that's a, that's a whole other problem. But like, you know, and, and so and so we're looking at all the situation, you know, the sewage system. You know, like usually, you know, you go to the bathroom, you flush the toilet, and you don't think about what happens next. You know what I mean? Like you don't think about where they in Gaza, there's no sewage management system. So what happens is when people use the bathroom, the sewage flows into the ocean because that's the only thing they can do. And so I want you to imagine this. I was driving with with my friends in Gaza by the beach, and it smelled really bad. I'm like, yo, what is this? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, the, all the sewage from the city flows here. Wow. So you can't even swim there because you'd be swimming in your own feces. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy. And, like, people don't understand that. Like, this is the life that they're living, man. It's not of their choosing. They didn't decide that they wanted to look like this. It's all imposed on them by a, 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 a genocidal state called Israel. And so when we see what's been taking place over the past 72 hours... You kind of start to understand, like, yo, like, if I was in that position, what I, what would I do? And I and that's the question I've been asking reporters that have been asking me this, like, well, why did why did Palestinians do this? Why would they do this? I'm like, bro, like, <laughs> who would who would accept these conditions of life upon themselves? Nobody. Man. Yeah, well, I human mean, beings, everybody has a breaking point at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Palestinians already reached their breaking point a long, long time ago. Like, even before the siege, it was already horrible. You know, and now after the siege, it's like, it's crazier. And so, you know, subhanAllah, man, like, you know, set, set al-Aqsa aside. Set all the stuff that we talked about, Aqidah, before aside, right? And our, and our, and our connection to Palestine. 
if Muslims in the world were suffering like this, don't we have an obligation towards freeing them from these conditions? Whether or not they had a Mecca or whether or not they had an Aqsa, just that in and of itself, on its own, is sufficient for Muslims to rise up around the world and free them. Straight up. So, you know, 2.1 million Palestinians live in these conditions. That's only in Gaza. In the West Bank, you have another several million Palestinians living there who are also under occupation, live under direct Israeli colonial domination, which means that Israeli military forces come into their homes, come into their cities, their towns, their villages, restrict their movement through checkpoints, prevent them from importing, exporting. Their economy is entirely captive. Their economy is entirely captive. The Israelis control tax revenue, bro. Like they collect taxes from Palestinians in the West Bank. That's like, they that's, control, like a, that's like beyond disrespectful to still collect taxes. Like I'm telling you, man. Like it's it's when I talk about a system wow. of domination, that's what I mean. And so when Israel expects that to dominate Palestinians this way, to conquer Palestinians, to divide Palestinians in this way, and expect to just remain safe and secure, that's 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 ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's just that's not not humanly logical to think that way. So, right. And so if people want peace, mm -hmm. if people want peace, then they have to serve it with justice. Right. As once our brother Malcolm X once said, may Allah, may Allah bless his soul. Um, you cannot have peace without freedom because nobody could be at peace uh, without freedom. Right. And so and so um, and, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. said something similar. Right. What did he say? He said that um, uh, peace is not merely the absence of, of tension or something to that extent, but but the presence of justice. Mm. Right. And so justice is a central component of any discussion about peace. So don't come at me with the whole two state, whatever, you know, everybody lived Kumbaya together. OK, cool, cool. That's cool. And the occupation, bro. And the siege on Gaza. And the suffering of the pa Palestinian people. And then we can start talking about any solutions. You know, Barakallahu Fiqh for uh, explaining about what's currently going on because it, it, it segues into like, let's the let's say like contrarian views about that, right? So what I want to do, I want to say some statements, and then what I would ask is if you could give a thirty second answer, uh, like a let's say like an elevator pitch answer, and then you can do a longer answer after, right? So you brought up that point if somebody said that. So if somebody said to you, they say, okay, well, Tahir. I hear what you're saying. It's very sad. It's unfortunate, but it does sound like the Jewish people still have a claim to this land and they're there already. So why can't the two just coexist, right? Like it, it seems that the Jewish uh, faith has just as, just as much claim to this land. And so the Christians, why can't the two just coexist in this land? I mean, look, bro, it's, it's not about having claims to the land. Like <laughs> Europeans colonized Palestine. You know, it's not like it's not like an indigenous Jewish people rose up in Palestine and took over. No, like you're talking about Austrians, Poles, Germans, Russians, uh, Ukrainians. They all came from all Eastern Europe, all over the world, bro. And they and they and they colonized the land. You know, and and there's and that's there's a whole another discussion about you know the racial dynamics within Israel itself and how they privilege white white Jews, for example, over black Jews. So like Ethiopian Jews are not treated the same way as like, uh, you know, white Jews are, uh, European Jews are. And so like the big problems there, like even Ethiopians have like 
are treated like trash, bro. Like they're they're shot in the streets. Or like it's kind of like it's kind of like the dynamics here in the United States, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the black people are dealing with. And so, and that's because there's racial exclusivity in in Israel. That the whole system was designed that way, you know, white supremacist system, right? So, if you don't understand that, you 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 can't understand why Palestinians would defy this system, right? That's been created, that's been imposed on them. So um, what would be your elevator pitch answer for that? Like, if it, just so we can give our people who are listening to this some type of response, because. You know, you, mashallah, you're educated on this. And through this discussing with you, I'm educated on this now, right? But somebody who may see this, if they're asked this question in a split second, they're able to answer this about why can't the two coexist? What would you, something you, they could use to say? Simply simply put, you can't coexist with a colonizer. Mm-hmm. You can't coexist with someone who wants to dominate you. You can't coexist with someone who wants to erase your presence. With someone who wants to co-opt your culture and claim it as their own. Can't coexist with that. Simple as that. You know, it's 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 really for me, it's illogical to expect a native people, an indigenous Palestinian people, to uh, it's logical for them to be required to acknowledge the right of their colonizer to take over their land. It makes over it makes no sense to me. Palestinian people are constantly asked and required to accept Israel's existence, right? It's like, oh, first, I, I would get this question all the time in like debates and stuff with Zionists. Do you believe that Israel has a right to exist? And I'm just like, not at my expense. <laughs> it's not my, f- I didn't choose, I didn't choose who my colonizer was. I didn't say, you know, oh yeah, out of all the European colonizers, you know what? Let, let the white Jews come take over us. No, no, it's not. It's not my fault. I didn't. It's not something of my making. That's something that you chose as a colonizer to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to suffer the consequences of that. And so you know, when we engage in these types of discussions, you know, we kind of have to be direct about how we approach colonialism and how we are decolonial in our thinking ourselves. Right. So what if somebody came in and they said, okay, so Tahir, that, that makes sense. I hear you. But, you know, we still, uh, some people were lost. Some Jewish lives were lost by Hamas's attack. Hamas is wrong for attacking these people. You know, they, they've put 2 million Palestinian people at risk now because it's basically a war. They shouldn't have done that. What, what would you say to that 30-second elevator pitch? I mean, look, remove Hamas from the equation. Would the occupation exist without Hamas? Yes. With or without Hamas, Israel was already occupying Palestinians. With or without Hamas, Israel is already engaging in ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. With or without Hamas, Israel is already dispossessing Palestinians of their land. So Hamas is just a, is, 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 is right now is a central component of the discussion, obviously. But Hamas is, 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 is an effect. It's not the cause of the problem. Hamas is a response, is a Palestinian response to 75 years of Zionist colonization. And so once you start to understand in that framework, then you start to understand like, okay, well, maybe we can reach, maybe we could reach some type of understanding of how we can move forward. But otherwise, then you're just, you know, you're lying to yourself. That that, that makes sense, you know, that they, uh, regardless of who the individual is, this occupation would be there. And the the, um, actions that happened 
could lead to this with any group eventually. I see what you're saying. Now, what if somebody said... Because Zionists will constantly argue, oh, you know, Hamas is the problem. Hamas is the one that's oppressing Palestinians. If it wasn't for Hamas, Israelis wouldn't be forced to, to kill so many Palestinian children. Well, that's... That's bogus. That's bogus. Is is um, is Israel dealing with Hamas in the West Bank? No. Yet Israel killed 270 Palestinians in the West Bank this year already. So let's not let's not let's not mess around. I mean that, that's just a, that's a propaganda tactic that that the Zionists will try to use to justify their mass murder of Palestinians. And they'll use any trick up their sleeve to continue to do that. Now, what if someone said, all right, well, Israel's attack is only against this terrorist organization. Israel doesn't want to hurt the the, the Palestinian people. They, they just want to find Hamas and get Hamas out. This is all, it's just about them. Because even in the media, you'll see <laughs> in the mean, media, they've labeled this as Israel's war against guy, Hamas, you know? And it's like, my guy, subhanAllah. My family is in Gaza right now. Bro. Mm-hmm. All right. My family had their home destroyed in 2021, man. None of them are Hamas. Mm-hmm. None of them are even close to a Hamas position, even, you mm-hmm. could say. And, I mean, just look at, just go watch the, what, what you're seeing, you know, obviously on, on, on social media and on, on TV, bro. Tell me entire apartment buildings, the children that they're pulling out of the rubble. I mean, Israel is not interested in destroying Hamas. Israel is interested in destroying the Palestinian people. And we have to say it the way it is. Israel is engaged in a genocidal rampage on Gaza right now. And they're killing people wholesale by the hundreds. And and let me tell you, let me tell you, just take their own word for it. The first thing that the Israeli general, Galat, said in the first televised press conference that he had mm-hmm. in addressing the f- operation in Gaza. What did he call Palestinians? Do you remember? He called them, he uh, called them sa- animals or savages, something along the line. He called them human animals. Human animals, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So when they use that type of rhetoric, he didn't say Hamas or him. He didn't, he didn't say, he said, these people are human animals. Another translation I even said it, it said they were barbarians as well. Also, I seen one that right. said that. They, well. I mean, they, that, I mean, mm-hmm. colonizers constantly use the, the language of savagery and barbarism mm-hmm. to describe their the people that they're trying to kill, right? And that's something that here the colonists did in the United States and in Canada as well, and the same thing in, in Australia with the Aboriginal people. And the other thing was that when he announced the full blockade on Gaza, he said, "We're not going to send in water. We're not going to send in power." We're not going to send in gas. We're going to completely suffocate. So basically, on live TV in front of the entire world, this man announced that he is going to collectively punish 2.1 million people. That constitutes a war crime, bro. That That quite literally constitutes a war crime. And the problem that I have, the problem that I have is that people don't recognize that the U.S. government greenlit that. Biden today in his speech was praising the Israeli operations against Hamas terrorists. Bro, they're destroying schools. They, they hit a U.N. building. They're attacking Masajid, man. The amount of Masajid have been destroyed in Gaza. It's incredible. Families have been completely erased. I, I, I was just, subhanAllah, I was just talking to my friend in Gaza two days ago. 
because I was worried that it was his family. I saw the names of the family that was erased. 23 members of the Abu Quta family was massacred in one airstrike. You're talking about the grandpa, the, the son, and their children. So three generations in one airstrike, my dude. Allah. Killed. That is not a precision strike on Hamas positions, bro. That is genocide. Full stop. We we can't be shy about talking about it like that. Because that's what it is, and that's what Americans need to realize it is. So let me add to the 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 contrarian view. Now, this one isn't necessarily something contrarian view, but it is something I did want to include because it, it ties into an issue that is connected with the Ummah at a greater scale, right? You know, amongst the black Muslims, right? People being from the diaspora, people from the African continent, people who are black, people who are from just black people, right? There's a sentiment growing that, you know, it's, it's now, of course, we as the Muslims, Palestine and this issue is like the poster child for all Muslim causes, right? Every Muslim cause, if it's something, we they, they bring up Palestine, right, rightfully so, and they talk about it. But among some of the young people I was discussing, I think it was at Mass Ignite one year, right? And the year before that, you know, I, I heard some sentiments from some people about, you know, it's always pray for Palestine, right? And pray for this place, pray for that place. But what about the places where there are black Muslims, right? And the thing that had me scared and one reason why I really wanted to show that, you know, to not have this uh, this cause be secularized, right? To just being, oh, it's a Philistine thing. It's an Arab thing, right? It's a Muslim thing, right? How do we, in order to avoid that sentiment growing and becoming something bigger in the future to where the Ummah is split in some fashion on people supporting this cause, how do we rectify that? How do we make sure that these people don't have this, this, this type of qualms, you know, against, let me not say against, but they start to develop these type of feelings because, you know, the biggest yeah. thing, the shaitan, once he sees it's a crack of opening, he, he yeah. pours yeah. waswas yeah. into it, pours, he flames the fire, you know? And yeah. we need, of course, Muslim unity is a whole different discussion. And uh, part of why we have the issue we have today happening in Palestine, unfortunately. But please, Brother Tahir, uh, just add your thoughts to that, you know? Yeah, subhanAllah, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the situation of our ummah is so incredibly devastating that sometimes we don't, we don't even know where to start with talking about oppression and suffering. You know, we talk about the Rohingyas, we talk about the Uyghur people, we talk about the Muslim brothers in Central Africa, we talk about our brothers and sisters in South Asia and right now in India, we're dealing with just a straight up genocidal maniac of a government in India. I mean, it, it's just all, it's all over, you know? And it, it's like, people are like, they don't know where to start. Right. And, and, and I, and I, and I get that sense of frustration a hundred percent. I get it because as Palestinians, we've, we've been dealing with it for quite a long time. Right. So we know what it's like. But what I want people to realize is like, you know, let, let's not play oppression Olympics. You know, we're not we're not trying to compare our oppression to other people and then therefore say, oh, we need to prioritize this over the other. No, 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 no. Like the Ummah is bleeding, whether it's in uh, whether it's in Somalia or in Syria or in or Myanmar or wherever the Ummah is bleeding, you know, like any any part of the body of the Ummah that is hurt, then the, the whole body is hurt, right? And that's, that's the, what the Prophet ﷺ taught us. Mm -hmm. 
What I want people to understand, though, is that besides the aqidah dimension of Palestine, right, and its importance in Islam, we have to understand the political importance of Palestine right now in the modern day that we live. That Palestine is not only at the intersection of spiritual importance for us, but it's at the crux of political importance to the Ummah. And it's precisely because the Zionist movement has been successful in establishing the Jewish state of Israel and continuing its domination and colonization of Palestine that the Ummah continues to suffer today. And once we start to recognize that and start to deal with it as a problem that needs to be mitigated, then we could start to really fully grasp how deeply ingrained Israel is in the problems of our Ummah. I mean, people don't know this, but Israel has bombed more Muslim countries than, than the United States has. Oh. You know, and, and that's crazy. Israel has bombed Lebanon. Israel has bombed Syria. Israel has bombed Iraq. Israel has bombed Jordan. Israel has bombed Egypt. Israel has bombed Tunisia. Israeli jets reached Pakistan, bro. You know, Israel wants to destroy Iran. Uh, Israel was engaged in the in the in the process of splitting up Sudan and from 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 Sudan to South Sudan and North Sudan. Now, Israel was engaged in 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 battles with 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 Arab armies and, and Muslims around the world. And so Israel has been used essentially as a essential as 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 a, as a very effective tool by Western imperialism to disrupt divide and dismantle the ummah and once we recognize that and begin to coalesce our efforts around this then we could start to deal with the problems that our ummah is dealing with in an effective manner otherwise we are fooling ourselves bro if we think that we can continue to provide humanitarian aid to muslims suffering around the world that is a band-aid solution okay you know, it's like putting a bandaid on a on a on a on a on a heart attack. What? You got to deal with the political problem, the crisis that exists today, and that's why I'm always telling my brothers, like, look, I, I, I 100%. I, I'm, I, I'm the first to donate to humanitarian causes. I, I get it. It's, it's there's immediate need that needs to be dealt with. But if that's the extent of your activism and that's the extent of your support for the Ummah, then you're getting it wrong, man, because. Palestine is just going to keep getting bombarded. Then you're just going to, what, you're just going to keep donating blankets? What? No. You need to address the, 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 the cause of their suffering. The cause of their suffering is not, it's not a natural disaster. Like, for example, you know, a flood in Pakistan or, you know, an earthquake in Turkey or Morocco where, you know, people, it's just, subhanAllah, it's an act of God. There's nothing you can do about it. It's, you just have to support the people there. No, this is a man-made, deliberate, systematic disaster that is being exacted on Palestinians every single day. And so if and unless you deal with that, then you're not going to really help the Palestinian people achieve their achieve their liberation and, and, and end this cycle of violence right, that we're seeing. And so that's why I encourage people to not only donate to humanitarian causes, but to donate to organizations that do the work, that advocate on behalf of the Palestinian people in the United States, that advocate on and, and, you know for Muslims in, in America and whatnot, because that's the kind of work that needs to be done right now. You know what I mean? Like you have no idea how much happiness I found today. Mm. in interacting with reporters who were Muslims and Palestinians, who who got it, who got it, who, who from the outset were like, yo, bro, we're with you. You know, we're, we're going to try to set you up in a good way. You know, you know how happy that made me feel? 
because you know because our community didn't focus on these type of sectors you know didn't focus on working in this type of field you know and mm-hmm. we were just focused on making enough money surviving sending money back home that's right and providing for our community building our message that's it you know that's all that mattered but now we're recognizing like if you're going to gain power and if you want to gain influence you have to gain power right and the way to gain power is through engaging in all the different sectors engaging in liberal arts engaging in journalism engaging in law engaging in politics and that's just that's just the way it is you can't ignore that reality i don't want the, the ummah to be divided on on these issues because look we're we we all want to end suffering right it's not like it's not like you know somebody's is, is happy to see suffering somewhere else and and i i want i want to caution from this 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 sort of sentiment that i've seen I ha- and i have noticed it too in the community um hmm. where where people feel like there is sort of a um, a privileging of certain oppression over others right and i think I think there is there is a racial dimension to it for sure. I think that that's true, but at the same time, I also think that um, there needs to be a recognition of where we're at politically as a community, so that we can address these issues. Because if we're if we're, we'd be silly to to feign ignorance about the connection between Israel and the United States, the connection between Zionism and Islamophobia, the connection between what Zionist groups are doing uh, to Palestinians. And what Zionist lobby groups in the United States are doing to ensure uh, that Muslims don't rise in ascendance in this country, you know, these these are all things that we need to know and acknowledge, right? So, like, you as a Muslim in general need to be concerned with what Zionists are doing because of that. Um, and so, you know, that, that's something that I think needs to be emphasized a little bit more in our community, so that we can get beyond these little tensions that we have. And I, I want to say little, but get, get beyond these these grievances that some some community members might have about about the way things are addressed. Now, you know, one thing I want to do also with this episode today, I want to also be able to remove misconceptions, you know. So what are some misconceptions mm-hmm. about what's going on right now in Palestine, or in Palestine, I should say, right? Let me say Palestine. That, it, that they're going on right now that may be put out into the media that's happening. What are some misconceptions that you want to clarify that you can clarify for us today. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest misconceptions that we're hearing right now is that um, this Palestinian attack was unprovoked. Uh, and, you know, based on what I just told you for the last hour and a half, obviously, if you know the context of what's been taking place in Palestine, you know that it wasn't unprovoked. That's number one. Um, number two is, you know, this notion that the level of violence is unprecedented is also bogus because Israel has massacred thousands of Palestinians in a matter of days before on multiple occasions. Um, And so this is not unprecedented. If you've lived in Palestine, if you lived in Gaza, if you lived under siege, then you're fully and keenly aware and experience on a day-to-day basis violence exacted upon you by the Israelis. And so that's, that's another thing that, you know, uh, I, I wanted to mention, um, and 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 the biggest thing, man, that I've been just seeing spewed in, in the narrative is that like Palestinians are just pure, bloodthirsty, evil animals that just want to kill Jews, um, and that's why they did this. And it's like, yo, where have you been? You know, the past seventy-five years, fam. Like, where where have you been the past four years? Where have you been the last year? 
mm-hmm. haven't you seen what's going on? Like you suffocate a people for long enough, something is gonna pop. You know, it's not you can't you can't maintain the status quo um, for forever. And we've every colonized people have risen up and fought back. You look at the Algerians against the French. You look at what happened in Rhodesia. Look at you look at the South Africans against the Afrikaners. You look at you know the Vietnamese against the, the French and the Americans. You know you look at the Filipinos against the Spanish and the Americans. I mean every occupation and colonial uh, adventure, quote unquote, uh, is met with resistance. Is met with a, a colonial uprising, and so is it that. Unprecedented? No, it's 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 not. I mean, it's 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 is it is it surprising? It shouldn't even be surprising. It should be actually quite uh, natural to to understand what is taking place right now, considering the context of the occupation and the settler colonization of Palestine over the past seventy five years. Subhanallah, it's, it's 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 wow. This thing runs deep, man. This thing, just hearing about it and hearing about the different dimension dimensions, you know, just. To even know that something like a caloric, a caloric intake is like measured out and given to no. these people. Like, I mean, and, and, just, and subhanAllah, you just reminded me of something, you know, there's also this other myth that, you know, is always um, being discussed and brought, like, sort of brought out. And that's like, oh, well, you know, this is a centuries long conflict between Muslims and Jews and that, you know. It's not going to end. Actually, heard super that today. Complicated. Yep, I heard that. Today. Yeah, you hear that a lot, mm-hmm. and, and and Americans are constantly fed this. That like you guys will never understand. You know, uh, you know, just let just let Israel deal with these savage Muslims because they're the you know. So just support Israel. Just give us three point five billion, and don't worry about it. We'll deal with it. And it's like what? No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. There there hasn't been a centuries long fight and battle between Muslims and Jews. That's just completely factually incorrect. I mean. <laughs> Look at Jewish historians, what they write about Jewish history and their engagement with the Muslim world, bro. That's completely and utterly false. This this is not based on a aqidah battle between Judaism and Islam. It's not. It's a settler colonial project that Palestinians who happen to be the majority happen to be majority Muslim are fighting against a Zionist movement that happens to be majority Jewish. Right. So there are religious overtones to this. Absolutely. Especially in light of the fact that Palestine means so much to Muslims and to Jews. But the, 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 the crux of the matter is, is occupation, is, is, is that somebody came to dominate another people and erase them and move them away from their land and displace them. And that's that's the, the essential to, aspect. To add also, I think the other thing that should be added also that uh, kind of gets uh, lumped over there are Palestinian Christians that are affected by this also, you know, that are being yeah. like they just yeah. suffer the same fate just because they're Palestinian yeah. also, you know. I mean, Israel actually yesterday bombed the third oldest church in the world, bro. That's in, it's in Gaza. They bombed it. Wow. And it's destroyed. Yeah. They bombed it, man. Subhanallah. So you want to tell me like they're attacking Hamas at a church in Gaza, bro? Subhanallah. Now, if, yeah, if you can just yeah. detail, like, what's the day-to-day like right now? Like, what, how, how have things escalated? What's happening right now currently? I mean, I'll just tell you what my family is telling me. You know what I mean? Um, food is running out. There's, oh, wow. I mean, there's no supply of food. Bakeries are closed, so people can't get bread. Um, internet bandwidth has been limited, so people can't really go. They can't go live, for example, 
on on social media because there's no there's no strong internet. Um, electricity has been completely cut off. Like Gaza, like for since the siege started, has been dealing with limited electricity, but they would get it for like three hours a day, four hours a day, six hours a day, you know. So they would charge their batteries, they would charge generators and stuff like that and get things going. Electricity has been completely cut off. And so I'm trying to reach family members, bro, and they can't text me back because their phones run out of battery. Wow. And so now I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if they're alive or if you know with the battery out of you know out or if they're just they're not alive anymore because I can't verify. Right now, I'm, I'm literally looking at my phone right now to see if I got a message from one of my family members. Subhanallah. Subhanallah, bro. I, I don't see. Yeah. I, it's... Inshallah khair, but this is it's yeah, very, man, it's so... very, it, it, it can cause much like worry and anxiety for somebody, you know, definitely caused like at the highest of levels, you know, especially with what's going on, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially with what's going on. I mean, it's, it's it's like it's devastating, bro. I, I can't. I, it's it's indescribable the devastation. Indescri I mean, you can't walk out into the streets. You have nowhere to go. I know. I know people who are leaving from one home to another because they go to one home, then they hear it's gonna get struck, so they leave it. Then it gets struck, and then they go to another home, and then they hear it's gonna get struck, and it gets struck, and they leave it. So, and they're like, "Where, where you? I mean, where are you gonna go? There's no." And then the, the cynical, sick. Logic of Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, the other day he announced that Gaza will be under attack and he's urging Gazans to leave. Leave now. Leave where, bro? They're under siege. Where are they going to go? So Gazans started trying to leave. They went to the border with Egypt. They went to the Rafah crossing. And today we see that Israel bombed the Rafah crossing where people were trying to leave from. So it's like... They're treating us like um, like animals, bro. Like exactly how they described us. Besieging us, locking us in, and just shooting the world's most sophisticated firepower at us. American-made weaponry. I see something. I don't know how true it is or not, but I heard that they used white phosphorus. They did use white phosphorus again. And white phosphorus is banned, if I'm not mistaken, correct? From it's an internationally seen. banned... Weapon of mass destruction. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. It's 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 terrifying. It's terrible. What other atrocities are happening there? So people know, you know, what other what, like what else is going on? You know, I mean, there's so many you've listed, but there are there any other any other things that are going on as far as atrocities happening to the people right now? I mean, I just told you about some of the families that have been completely erased. As far as I know, there's been at least 10 families uh, that have been just completely killed. I mean, all, all members of their family. Um, right now we're talking about, I think, close to 850, 900 Palestinians killed in the past three days alone. Um, uh, like you said, Gaza is 43% uh, under the age of 14. And so... Um, the vast, the, a, a huge chunk of the people that were killed were, were children. I see images of babies being pulled out from under the rubble. Um, just devastating, devastating images, bro, that I cannot even describe to you. I mean, it's just. 
you know, it's 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 it's, it's, it's so graphic, bro. That like I'm just like man. I I had to act like alhamdulillah today my phone ran out of battery because I I couldn't I couldn't look at it anymore. Like it was just too much. Like it, my like I and I've seen like I've lived through a lot of these situations before, but what we're seeing now, man, is different. Like it, like before Israel would act with some restraint because they would be concerned with the response of the international community. They would be concerned with what the Americans might say, you know, but now it's like, no, 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 no. Like there's no, the gloves are off, off. Like there's no restraint. Like if they wanted to use a weapon of mass destruction on Gaza right now, the United States would green light. And that's exactly why they're using white phosphorus because they know there's going to be no accountability. Which is insane, very insane. I mean, that's that, that that should be a human rights crime instantaneously. You know, to use something internationally banned, right? Like, I mean, I, I, we didn't even hear about white phosphorus used in Russia Ukraine situation, right? But to hear about it's it crazy. in this, right? Like, to, to hear about it in an instance of people who don't, because I mean, it's not like. I mean, with all due respect, uh, but like Hamas is not like some huge army you're fighting, right? But to use something uh, no, with such capacity for people that are so... I mean, even, even in conventional warfare, even in, even if it was a conventional war, right, between two armies, white phosphorus is banned. You can't use it. You can't use it. It's, it's, it's not allowed. It's and like you should know what's bad like when home. Western civilization agrees to ban something from a society that's godless. <laughs> like, you should know this is like, hey, this is really yeah. bad. But you know, brother Tahir, like for us to like get because you know we about to get we're getting to the ending portion, you know, this uh discussion. But let's talk about the way forward, right? Because this is the biggest thing we need to discuss, right? The way forward, right? Yeah. You know, if you think about Surah Rad, right? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the eleventh uh, ayat, you know, a lot, a lot. He states that you know he won't change the condition of a people until they change it for themselves, right? Right. And we see that Palestine. People, somebody asked, I, I think I seen a tweet or a comment, how come the other Muslim countries aren't helping Palestine right now, right? And it's like the rest of the Muslim countries that we have, it's too many issues going on, like you said, right? Like if you just look at the surrounding Arab world, it's in shambles right now. That's yeah. around yeah. Palestine to be able to help, to assist. Everybody has like some type of, it, it, it's almost like you have to go fight some people and then you try to get your friends, but somebody got a broken arm, yeah. somebody got a broken yeah. leg, yeah. somebody's missing an eye, somebody like nobody's at a hundred percent, you know? And that's just because what the body, the head of all those establishments, they're, they're, they're in bad positions right now, bad leadership, you know? So with instability and bad leadership that seems to plague our Oma and just the madness going on, like, what would you suggest we need to change, like internally and externally, as Muslims to be able to like move forward and help with this situation, right? Because of course, there's hadith of the victory of uh, uh, of the Muslimin having this land and ruling this land, right? Nabi Isa alayhi salam, right? Imam al Mahdi alayhi salam, like these people, these figures. But before we get to that point, it's not just gonna happen just because all right, we're Muslim in that. No, like we're gonna have to do some work. So. What do we need to do internally and externally to get to that point? Yeah. You know, that's a very, very good question. First of all, victory comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not from the actions of one individual or group of people. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills that victory comes through a certain person or group, then that's then that's that's what Allah wills. If not, then Allah will choose another path. 
uh, or another group of people to choose for for him uh, for the victory to emerge in. And I truly believe, I truly, truly believe that the Palestinian people are the final front for the Ummah, are the, are the last line of defense. Because if the Ummah could not defend the land that the Prophet ﷺ made his Isra and Mi'raj, the land of the ascension of the Prophet, the land that the Sahaba wept over and fought for, the land that Muslims for centuries have been caring for and, and taking care of and, 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 and protecting and keeping free, then I quite frankly believe that the Ummah of Muhammad this current modern one, has failed to fulfill its obligation towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the Palestinian people fighting back right now, continuing the struggle, standing and praying in Masjid al-Aqsa, protecting it, protecting Palestine and the people of Palestine, they are the last line of defense for this ummah because nobody else is stepping up. And we gotta, we gotta, and, and I'm not just saying this as a Palestinian, but we gotta, we gotta pay our respects to that. We gotta pay our respects to that. The other thing I wanna say is, some people are quite self-righteous and um, act humble when in reality they're not. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is we need to get off our high horse and stop talking about spiritual renewal and upliftment and development as a precursor towards liberation and freedom. What do I mean by that? I mean that Allah, that's, not how, that's not how it works. Sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses people as agents of justice that you would never expect. That you would never expect. I swear to you, bro, I saw a more principled position today from a playboy model named Maya Khalifa, bro, than I've seen from some Muslim leaders. Mm -hmm. Why? Come on, man. That's embarrassing, bro. That's embarrassing, man. You, you say, La ilaha Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah every single day. And you can't even stand up for your Muslim brothers and sisters? Come on, man. And so for me, it's like, you know, I, I heard some brothers, you know, yesterday saying, you know, I was telling some brother, you know, we should go to the protest. Let's go, you know, let's go make our voices known. And they're like, ah, you know, that's, that's not for me, man. I'm going to go make dua in my room. I'm like, all right, well, you recognize that you're not doing it right if that's what you think Islam is. Islam is not something that you just do in your room, bro. Islam is something that you act upon, that you engage in. And that when the ummah calls upon you to stand for it, when justice needs to be served, you act as an agent of justice. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Bani Adam as the Khalifa on this earth. And so if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted you to just be a, a worshiper and just a servant, he would, have, he would have made you an angel. All you do is just worship Allah and, and listen to Allah and that's it. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you the will, the ability to change the course of history. And I, I implore my Muslim youth my, my friends, my family members, everybody who, who, who listens to this, this is the time for action. This is not the time for docility. 
this is not the time for reflection and sitting down and and, and just really thinking about um, uh, how we want to how we want to improve our nefs before we engage in this work. Look, you improve your nefs through engaging in this work. You improve your nefs through engaging in the struggle against oppression. And you improve your nefs by enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil. As the Prophet ﷺ commanded us, The Prophet said that if you witness or, or, or come across an injustice, you fix it with your hand. And if you cannot, then you speak out against it. And if you cannot, then you hate it in your heart. But that is the weakest of faith. We have the inverse understanding of this hadith. Man. We, we, we want to hate it in our heart first, and then maybe we'll speak out against it. And then maybe if we're so passionate, we'll take justice, we'll take it into our own hands and then take justice. That's not what the Prophet says. That's not the formula that he gave us, man. That's not the formula that he gave us. And so if and and, and if we allow oppression and injustice to exist in one place, then I can guarantee you it will fester and 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 expand like a cancer and move to other places. That the suffering of the Palestinian people in Gaza and the rest of Palestine today, if it is not dealt with by the Ummah, suffering across the Ummah will take place. And that's exactly what we are seeing. That's exactly what we are seeing today. So I urge you to please, let's not give us our excuses. Let's build the moral courage, stand up and speak out. And now is the time to do it. There's no other time. There's no waiting game here. People are suffering. People are dying as we speak. Well, yeah, mashallah. And, you know, the, the the last thing I would ask, you know, I was listening to uh, Imam Omar Suleiman, who's also uh, from uh, Palestinian descent. Uh, he was speaking about the Al-Ard uh, Al-Muqaddasa, right? And explaining why the land is holy and things of that nature. But he says something that really, it, it struck me. He said, the land is holy, but that doesn't automatically make the people that inhabit the land holy, Right. And one may argue that the Muslim world has too many problems to declare who is at fault amongst us, right? Like who who did this, who did that? And it seems almost to a degree that when it comes to, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us to be the best of nations, right? We are the best ummah. But with that, like to be the best, it, it, it comes with work. So it means we're going to have to outwork everybody, right? We're going to have to work at some level to maintain this excellence, right? It's not just, it's just there, right? You just can't become complacent like you're saying, oh, I just go to my room and make do, uh, do things of that nature. You have to perform at this, right? What do you think has led our ummah to be, you could say, either arrogant or ignorant in our standing as far as the 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 activism portion as far, uh, for, with, our, with our deen or even the ilm portion, right? Like we're very just, I'm Muslim, like, you know, just drop down, spawn, I'm Muslim. Salam alaikum wa rahmatullah, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a complicated question. Requires a complicated answer. Um, colonialism messed us up, bro. Um, and it's very unfortunate that we in our ummah have people who call themselves scholars, who issue fatwas and edicts that create complacency within the ummah that remove that pride that izzah that we have in our deen and make us 
these docile beings that just worship Allah privately in our homes or in our masajid and don't ask for anything else. That is not how this ummah became what it is. That's not how Islam spread around the world. That is not how our beloved Prophet Muhammad and the Sahaba engaged in their understanding of Islam itself. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's a complicated question because it's multi-layered, it's multifaceted, something that we're dealing with. But I'll just tell you right now, if you look at the history of Muslim anti-colonial movements from West Africa to East Asia, it was Muslim scholars who were leading the path. It was Muslim scholars who were engaged in that struggle. Sometimes it was armed and violent, and sometimes it was not. But they were always engaged in liberating Muslim lands because they understood what it means to be under colonial domination. And I just want the Ummah to come back to that common understanding, man. You're not going to live a better life living under the rule of someone else. You're not going to live a better... You're not, you, Palestinians are not going to live a better life of being all... Uh, surrendering and living under Israel's colonial domination. That's not how it works, man. Uh, neither will the Syrians ever live a free life living under a dictator. Neither will the Indian Muslims and the Pakistani Muslims and the Kashmiris, Kashmiris in particular, live a free life under Indian colonial occupation. So we have to be clear about our understanding of Islam, but also clear about what needs to be done to end the suffering of our Ummah so that we can move forward. Jazakallah khair. You know, first of all, I'd like to say barakallahu feek to you, Brother Tahir, for uh, taking your time to do this special episode, you know, something definitely that we wanted to highlight for the people in um, detail, you know, how did we get to this point? You know, how did we, uh, 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 what's happening going on? This this form of oppression that is amongst the most brutalist on the face of the earth happening right now, like for somebody to... I mean, you guys, I want people listening to this before like we get off this, you know, just imagine having someone dictate how much you eat every day just so you don't die. And then they still tax you on top of that. You know, think about that. Think about that. You know, what what type of life do you live? What type of thoughts do you have? What type of dreams and ambitions do, do these children aspire, right? Is it something you just aspire maybe to reach a certain age? Maybe you get married. Maybe you become a high faith of Quran, you know, but big aspirations these children they may not have these things you know because that's not a yeah. reality that is real to them you know it's not a reality that's real to them you know and we detailed looking mm-hmm. at the quran right what does allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to say about this land this land we call it palestine that's the name right but this land is al-muqaddasa it's the holy land it's not any type of land it's Baytul al-maqdis right it's a very special land. It's very dear to us. It's very dear to our Prophet It's where he made his Isra and Miraj, right? It's where he ascended into the heavens, right? Where he ascended, you know? This is a very special place. He led the Anbiya in Salah there, right? Something that's never happened before was done there, you know? It's a very, mm-hmm. very important place. And we see that, uh, 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 that this land... Um, Oh, I see the link that just went. But we see that this land also it um it it didn't come to the people who now are the main, I guess, the rulers of the land in a way that was conventional. It didn't come through a means of peace. It didn't come through a means of 
we want to live here together as brothers in the, under the Abrahamic faith. No, it came by means of manipulation, a means of aggression, a means that was there to impose a, a way of life and ideology upon a, a group of people, you know? And we've seen that through the years of time, it, it, it didn't get any better. It only got worse, worse and worse, to where someone, they don't try to live with you, but they try to manage you. Manage you enough to where, just so it doesn't look bad, you know, for the cameras, you know? It, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, people who adopt children, right? And they, they get the money for having the children. And when the social workers and people come to check if the foster parents are doing good, mm-hmm. they put you in good clothes, make sure you're good for a little bit. But at, mm-hmm. then after that, it's just abuse, you know? And yeah. it, it's probably even worse than that, right? Because at least yeah. maybe you say this is a child, but these people don't even look at that, right? They don't even see that. No. And we've seen that some of the contrarian views that there are responses for them. You know, a lot of the times we may get asked these questions in positions and we, we, we freeze up, we tense up because we don't know what to say. Right. But there are responses, you know, and we should just take time and think about the question being presented to us and not be afraid to say the truth. Right. We're not saying anything hateful. We're just speaking something factual about a situation that is going on in the world that's documented. Right. A lot of the stuff our brother Tahir has said to us uh, wonderfully is stuff you can look up, stuff you can read, right? He didn't just, I don't know if brother Tahir, maybe unless you have like a jinn whispering to you that we don't know about, someone like uh, telling you, hey, say this, this, and that. But I'm pretty sure you studied all of this and you were able to learn this stuff and share this information, you know? And then we see that the way forward for us is we we should become actively involved in trying to help rectify the situation for our Palestinian brothers and sisters, you know, and we would love and hope to encourage our ulama to get involved in these uh, efforts with us as well, because Palestine is a, is a is a very dear place to us, and it's the it's the center. Just even looking where it's located geographically, it's the center point in 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 the world. Or let me not say in the world, but that area is like kind of center point in the world, at least in terms of how maps look, right? So this is a very special place to us. And you know, one last thing I want to say, you know. There's an African proverb, you know, when elephants fight, the grass suffers, right? And what's below us right now, who, who are under us, it's the children. And like I said before, mm-hmm. 43%, 43%, ladies and gentlemen, almost half of the population of Gaza is under the age of 14. Think about that. Very, like, they just had a generation that just hit puberty, you know, or hasn't hit puberty yet, Right that are there, 860,000 children, maybe more, maybe less, but around that number that are at risk, that are at the mercy of what's going on. No water, no electricity, no access to resources, no food. I mean, may Allah bless them and may Allah strengthen them and and grant them uh, life, you know, because who knows what could happen in the next couple of days. Wallahu alam. But, you know, once again, please, Donate to Mercy Without Limits, you know, our pons- uh, a partner of Mass to uh, help uh, uh, fund uh, the children there in uh, Palestine. And as well, also, American Muslims for Palestine, please donate to them also. You know, uh, Brother Tahir, if you want to add something uh, about American pa- uh, Muslims for Palestine, I see you put the link or you put the Guardian link in there. Right, the I, I put you the link about uh, about the caloric intake. I'm going to read that after. Allah. So we can read that. That's crazy, man. I know a lot of people don't know about that, but it's, it's, it's real. If there's one hadith, I mean, there's one ayat or one hadith or one something of the sunnah, one thing that you would like to leave people with, 
maybe relating to this issue or not relating to this issue that you can leave us with so we can like ajr for the akhirah. Please share with us. Mm -hmm. Just one thing. Lately, I've been coming a lot back to uh, Surah Al-Saf. You know, it's been a it's been a surah that I just love reciting in prayers because um, I feel like it just gives me a lot of strength. And just thinking about you know the ayah where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Yuriduna liyutfiu nur Allahi bi afwahim, Allahu matamurunihi nurihi wa lakariha al kafirun." You know that they they try to uh, blow out the the light of Allah with their with their mouths, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, His light is is um, uh, permanently displayed or you know permanently present, uh, even at the behest of the disbelievers. And you know another one that, that right after that you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Yeah, you haladina amanu." هل أدلكم على تجارة تنجيكم من عذاب أليم؟ تؤمنون بالله ورسوله وتجاهدون في سبيل الله بأموالكم وأنفسكم ذلكم خير لكم إن كنتم تعلمون. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala basically is telling the believers, you know, هل أدلكم على تجارة لم لم you know let me let me guide you towards a a good deal, a good transaction. تؤمنون بالله ورسوله to believe in Allah and His Messenger. وَتُجَاهِدُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ بِأَمْوَالِكُمْ وَأَنفُسِكُمْ and to, and to do jihad in the sake of Allah with your with your wealth and with yourselves. ذَلِكُمْ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ That this, was, this is better for you, only if you knew. And SubhanAllah, you know, man, I think that we... Um, I don't know, man. I feel like sometimes we think that Jannah comes easily, you know. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a clear prescription that like this is not gonna be an easy journey. That this dunya is temporary and that we have to put everything forward to advance the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to raise the banner of Islam. And I think that, you know, that's something that we kind of need to hammer in a little bit more and, and think about and reflect on these ayat. Um, and and, and that, those ayat came right after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is describing the struggles of Musa and Isa with their people, man. You know, subhanAllah, like for me, it's just like, it really hits home. I, I love that surah. I've been reciting it a lot lately. And um, I feel like it's, uh, it grounds my, my thinking and my work right now for this cause. So I hope... Um, People take it for what it is, but you know that's that's where I'm at right now. Mashallah, Mashallah, Mubarak, Jazakallah Khair, Brother Tahir, um, brothers and sisters, you guys, thank you for listening. Uh, this is a special edition episode of the Remaster Podcast. We pray Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala blesses uh, our brothers and sisters in Palestine and their resistance against uh, one of the ugliest forms of oppression against uh, people that seem to be heartless in their actions towards them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also bless uh, brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering from other uh, ills uh, that are going on, namely Afghanistan as well also, who had the uh, earthquake that happened as well also. May Allah grant them ease. Mm -hmm. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, forgive anything we may have said on the show that may have been wrong. And anything that he has said, anything that we have said that is right is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Uh, we pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends blessings upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
Um, I'd like to thank you, Brother Taha, for joining us today for this special edition episode, brothers and sisters. I hope this episode really educates you. Please share this episode with many people, as many people as you can, so they get educated on what's going on and what happened, more importantly, and why it's connected to us as an ummah as well. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to Remaster Podcast. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.